0: Up until the point where I burned the book, I don't know if I had the language to approach it, to dissect it, to analyze it.
1: Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from ArtNet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. A few years back, a proud mother to be wanted to share her news with the world. The mother was a pop star, Beyoncé Knowles. The news was a gloriously beatific photo of her pregnant form. And the photographer who took it was a young Ethiopian-born artist named Awal Arizcu. On the strength of that viral photo, Erisku became world-famous overnight. But those who think it marked the pinnacle of his career were dead wrong. Now 32 years old, The artist has been featured in the exhibition The New Black Vanguard, Photography Between Art and Fashion, curated by previous Art Angle guest Antoine Sargent. And he was recently the subject of a fascinating new solo show at New York's Flag Art Foundation, which stirringly lays out his own unique vision of what it means to be a member of the Muslim African diaspora in these turbulent times. To find out about the path that led him to Beyonce and to better understand the nature of his creative project, I'm pleased to have Awal Orizku on the show today. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Awal.
0: Pleasure to be here, Andrew. Thank you for having me.
1: So I know you work between New York and Los Angeles. Where are you calling in from right now?
0: Currently, I am home in L.A.,
1: And how are you doing? It's a crazy time in America. You know, the headlines are enough to um, keep you up at night. How are you doing these days?
0: I'm doing good. You know, I can't complain. I'm a recent father, so I've been enjoying that moment. It's been a very, not just eye-opening, but also like a very fulfilling aspect of my life. You know, I'm learning. I'm learning every day. I'm learning about being a father. I'm learning about what it means to raise a daughter in this day and age. So it's all part of life, but very, very exciting, very, very exciting and um, wholesome.
1: (laughs) Huge congratulations on your first child.
0: Thank you, yeah.
1: So you've had a fascinating career, and I wanna talk to you about your art and the issues that you tackle in it. But first, let's go back in time a little bit to talk about your origin story. Sure. Because biography is really at least one key uh, to your art. So where were you born And what was your upbringing like?
0: My birthplace is in Ethiopia, but I was raised in the Bronx. Like I grew up in the Bronx. I I didn't really spend much time in Ethiopia. My parents moved around quite a bit. And for the early part of my life, I spent time with my grandmother. And so when I moved back with my father in New York, that's where I've been, you know? So I was with my father and my mother and my two, uh, and I have two younger sisters. So in that way, I had to kind of grow up f- fast, you know? I had these two <laughs> younger sisters to look after. We were raised in the Bronx, which is, you know, very, at that time, a challenging sort of time and not the softest place to grow up in. And we grew up like that. And I think a lot of that is also reflected in in my interests and my sensibilities as an artist. Everything from the sort of multicultural global perspective of one's identity versus monolithic way of looking at the world.
1: So you grew up in the Jackson houses in the South Bronx, which is a public housing project. And I mean, this was the Bronx, I think it was in the nineties. New York was going through one of its kind of cyclical economic crises. The city was not in a good place. What was that kind of environment on the streets like? in the South Bronx during your childhood.
0: I mean I saw a lot of things, you know, as a kid and I'm not sure how that differs from, you know, other people's sort of experience growing up. Based on my personal experience, I think at that particular time and I think I would say it's more early 2000s than the 90s where, you know, my family kind of located to the projects and where I was for quite some time and going through high school and and parts of my time at the Cooper Union. I don't know if you've ever been to the projects or spent much time there, but I think it's kind of like a tough love sort of environment. I never spent too much time in the Bronx. Like I've always been in the city more. I've, I've always been like a Soho kid. I've always spent much time in the city than I did in the Bronx. I always saw living in the Bronx as kind of like where I rest my head.
1: You've spoken before about how you were kind of a habitué of museums. You would go around the city checking out art. What was it that kind of got you interested in art in the first place?
0: I don't know, you know, I think my grandmother's always kind of nurtured that side of me and I never shied away from it. I would say that when I was applying for Cooper Union, my mother was like encouraging me to be an architect. And I was like, I can't do that. That's too (laughs) like, I don't know, that's too rigid. And I was more of a a loose cannon in, in terms of the way that I put thoughts together. It's just something that was in me that I just kept nurturing and people close to me had always encouraged. And I think my earliest memory of engaging as an artist was, and I'm not proud to say this, but I think it's important to my story, which is I was in junior high school and I was not a good kid. I had a friend, my best friend at the time, I would say this is pre 9-11 because I I don't think this would have happened post 9-11. And again, this is important, but we set a toilet paper on fire in one of the bathrooms and we got, we essentially got caught and we got sent to the principal's office. The principal had to report to another incident and she put us in this art class. She was like, look, I can't deal with you guys right now. You just stay here. I'll come back and get you. Right? So... Being in this class, I realized these kids were being prepped for high school. It was essentially a portfolio preparation class. So it was that moment where I realized like, oh, I don't have to be this sort of loose cannon. Like maybe I can formally nurture these interests that I have. Being in that class at that time just kind of clicked for me. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to turn this thing around. I'm going to focus on art. And I just kept coming back to that class for the remainder of the year. And later that Year, I, I ended up applying to the high school of art and design, and uh, mm. I got in, and then I just never looked back.
1: Wow, so this providential flaming roll of toilet paper, really yeah, kind of,
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know. Like, it's weird telling that story because it makes me feel like I did something that a kid, like an adolescent at that age, wouldn't do. But I think it was partly boredom, partly not getting the kind of education that I knew. Public school. I mean, again, we're, we're talking about like late 90s, early 2000s. So it, it, you know, it was a weird time. It's not what we know today. So it was just a very different time. But that is very essential to understanding this shift that I had in my upbringing, I guess.
1: Well, I, I think that it's safe to say that a lot of kids set rolls of toilet paper on fire, but not all of them become <laughs> incredibly talented yeah, artists yeah. <laughs> because of it. So, so
0: that's, yeah, it was, um, that is,
1: uh, it's fascinating. So you went on to Cooper Union, this incredibly prestigious art school in the city. What was your experience there?
0: I found myself frustrated by the curriculum and the sort of pedagogy that was available or or being shoved down our throats, which I think is reflected in the sort of discipline that I ended up committing to, which is always like expanding. And it's a perpetual self-reinvention in that way, because the more that I know the more that I feel that I need to reinvent something that I've already put out. So so I always find myself like revisiting ideas, you know, over and over again, even correcting some of my misreadings and miscalculations, if, if that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was at Cooper Union that your career really shot off pretty much on the strength of one extraordinary photograph that you did in 2009. So it's called Girl with a Bamboo Earring and it's a beautiful photograph, you know, I think has has a lot of staying power. Really, it seems to have a lasting kind of quality. Can you describe the artwork and talk about the backstory behind it?
0: Let's see. It's 2009. I believe I'm in my second year at the Cooper Union. I was working on an assignment for a class and my two sisters were assisting me on that particular day. And I had a model sort of who I met on the subway and the day came and she kind of bailed on me. And I knew that I had to deliver something for the class. I've been thinking about this image and I've been thinking about the girl with the pearl earring at the time. And it's actually something that I've been thinking about since that movie came out with Scarlett Johansson. I thought about it even more because of the way that it positioned itself in visual culture at that time. And I only wanted to do one image do my twist on it, make that statement and move on from it. Girl never comes. And I told my youngest sister, Miriam, that she had to be my model. So reluctantly, she would sit in for me. And I guess, you know, the rest would be history. So, (laughs) you know, here we are.
1: I mean, just to be clear for the listener, what is happening in this photograph is that we're talking about Vermeer's 1665 masterpiece, the girl with the pearl earring which is almost like a translucently pale woman of young age with this pearl earring. And what you did is you got your sister to stand in with a bamboo earring and your sister is a beautiful young black woman. And it totally turned the meaning and the the impact of this work. It was incredible. It was a, a detourning of art history, really inserting a, uh, a black figure into this iconic portrait, and the um, the impact of it is um, is indelible. You were not the first person to think of this idea. I mean, Fred Wilson, Kerry James Marshall, you know, um, a bunch of artists have been have been doing this for a while in terms of uh, placing black figures in the historically white canon. What was your uh, your inspiration here?
0: I don't know if you would call it inspiration. I think for me, I was bothered by how starkly pale and, and white the sort of, the history of, of Western art have been. And I think it was my way of inserting something that I wanted to see in that canon. And again, this is like very, very early in this long process ahead of me, but I think at the time I just wanted to make that one sort of insurgent. So I always looked at history because I grew up with the internet, I always kind of looked at history as like the way one would see a Rolodex, right? Like you could flip through it and then you have this Rolodex, you can add to it, you could take away from it. But since I can't take away anything, I wanted to insert something by way of the internet. So for me, I wasn't even so much concerned with making a print that was gonna go on, on a wall. I was more interested in having something that was gonna be competing with the girl with the pearl earring once it was online if that makes sense. Huh, totally.
1: I mean, things things on the internet level. Exactly. I mean, there is yeah, yeah. No, yeah. There's, there's a sort there's of enough,
0: leveling right? that happens when, when once you let something on the internet. And I think that was like the kind of earliest conceptual project that I can remember. The way that it materialized as a photograph, as something that was in addition, was something that allowed me to keep my practice going. You know what I mean? But I think on a conceptual mm-hmm. level, I was looking at it as something that was going to disrupt that sort of history and like you said i'm not the first but i think it was just my my take at it
1: you also you don't have to be the first person in a genre to put out a hit
0: that's true it's <laughs> even true. though that's, <laughs> that's you, true. you see
1: that from music but <laughs> so things happened pretty quickly after girl with the bamboo earring you got into yale's notoriously competitive mfa program yeah where you studied alongside peers like the painter Jordan Castile, who is now a big star in her own right. Yeah. You actually curated a show of Black artists at Yale in 2014, I believe. Yeah, 13 artists. What was the idea behind that show and and who was in the show?
0: I I had no idea that there wasn't a Black show before that show, like an all-Black student show at Yale before that. So the story behind that particular show was we had a space in the painting department that was essentially... Uh, A student had got kicked out that semester, and because that space was vacant, some of the painting professors allowed students to kind of put their shows together. Usually, I think a lot of students just used it as a personal space to show, you know, works in progress, maybe some ideas that were kind of bubbling. When I had an opportunity to show in that space, I thought it would be interesting to, again, not not really thinking about this sort of first black show, but as a way to start a dialogue amongst my peers and also to see what it was that we were all doing without it being a sort of thematic show. So the way I went about curating Mm -hmm. that show was I literally just went to all my friends, all my black friends at Yale at that time and went into their studio and I picked up something that spoke to me at that particular point. So there was no theme, there was no larger concept behind it other than we're artists working out some ideas and based on my sort of sensibilities, here are some things that I thought you know might, might start a conversation, if you will. And I think a lot of the artists are at this point Very well known, and they're big in their own right. And if you haven't heard of them yet, I think they're on their way. One of them is Jordan Castile. There's also David Alahoki, who's coming up, who's in the new MoMA show. There's uh, Genevieve Gagnard, uh, Hannah Price, Shaba. That whole class was just like a booming class, you know? That show also had like a, a long lasting sort of ripple effect in a way that I didn't intend or expect it to. I I just treated it like a one week show where I would see what was happening amongst my peers. And again, the rest was just something else.
1: So you got your own first show uh, at a Chelsea gallery before you even graduated. And things just kind of sped on from there. What did you do in the years after graduation?
0: I graduated May of 2014, I gave myself a five to six month sort of window where I would see what was to come after going through this sort of rigorous program at Yale. And I told myself that if if there wasn't anything in my life that was sort of anchoring me to be in New York, that I would have to go somewhere else and, and sort of start or restart my my mature artistic practice. And so in a way I treated, you know, this sort of ongoing residency here in LA as something like that, you know? At the time my now wife, you know, had just moved back here. You know, New York to me was getting a little bit claustrophobic. I was running into people everywhere. The space that I once had on Lafayette Street, my studio that was a flower shop, which also was like the place where I met my wife, had become very expensive and I couldn't afford it anymore. And it didn't make sense to pay that much rent without it really feeding my new found sort of sensibility. You know, my practice had grown sort of immersely and I just needed the space to kind of grow. And sadly I I wasn't thinking about going back to the Bronx to get a studio. So I just I just wanted to try something new and evolve in a new city and LA at that time presented itself and you know, oddly enough, I, I thought I was going to be there for I was going to be here for two years, and now I've been here for like six, going on seven. So, it, it, you know, it's huh. it's it's interesting.
1: <laughs> You're in LA, and 2017 rolls around, and I think that that is the year that the world really learned the name AWAL Rizku. You know, on February 1st of that year, at 10:39 a.m. <laughs> Pacific Standard Time, precisely. Right. right. Beyonce Knowles went on Instagram and posted this rapturously beautiful photograph of herself, pregnant, decked out like a renaissance Madonna and wreathed in flowers. And it was her, you know, quote unquote, pregnancy reveal. And it quickly became the most liked photo on Instagram ever, getting over 11 million little hearts. Wow. You took that photograph. I mean, I think most people see her as like this chart topping Mm -hmm. megastar, but she's been this incredible force in contemporary art. Right, because she works with really top flight artistic contributors right. with all of her visual projects. And she makes them famous. I mean, frankly, yeah. uh, so you worked with her on the pregnancy reveal. She tapped Tyler Mitchell to shoot her for the cover of Vogue, uh, which made him the first black photographer to do that. Uh, she worked with filmmakers Blitz Bazauli and Jen Nkiro, both of which in the um, the Whitney Biennial under Black is King Opus. You know, I mean, she's a megawatt influence like a, a planet almost in terms of her gravitational pull in visual culture so my question is how do you understand what she's doing how do you understand this project that she has this kind of multidisciplinary crossing boundaries you know totally like almost like volcanically amalgamative yeah um approach
0: i think what you're getting at, and what I've always known, and, and also the root of my practice is a sort of language and, you know, again, multifaceted discipline of connecting these diasporic visual culture, if you will, that she's essentially bringing all these things together and presenting them to a new generation that lives on the internet, right? So I I think that adds to the whole volcanic eruption, as it were. And she knows how to do that well. You know what I mean? So even if you look at the kind of incentive and working together in that way, is that there's this understanding that I, due to my background, due to my upbringing or whatever, there's a certain kind of visual culture that I always tap into. I'm also aware of like where it needs to go whether that's inserting my sort of version of something or maybe presenting an alternative possibility of, of looking at a certain thing. I think these are all things that she's also thinking about simultaneously. And I think, you know, she's obviously in in a much better place to kind of implement those ideas much faster than, you know, an independent artist. So I think when you match that with other creatives who are also equally invested in their practice and who are equally sort of multifaceted, then it's kind of easy to tap into those people and just say like, hey, let's do this, you know? And I think she does that really well. Mm -hmm. And I think, as you put it, like there's so many people who have kind of benefited from those sort of stars aligning in that way.
1: Is there anything that you learned about about art, about creativity, about this kind of put on a show approach to making things happen from working with Beyonce?
0: Yeah. Move in silence. Huh. Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) You know? she kind of sneaks up on you like that Yeah, well, I
0: mean, I guess I would say also just let the art do the talking, which is why I don't really give a lot of interviews. You know, if hmm. my work is not doing the talking, then why should I be here talking to you and creating fluff?
1: So I might be mistaken here, but it seems that after this project, your ambition kind of expanded in a sense. And I, and I think about this because there was a New York Times article that came out around the time of your Instagram photo that said that by one measure of success, the 28-year-old artist, Awal Larisku, has possibly already peaked. And that is clearly not the case. You've kind of evolved in all these different ways. So how did that kind of slingshot you into the next stage of your career?
0: I'm going to have to denounce that article. I think I was used in that article. I think I was clickbaited. You know, Mm -hmm. the interview that I had versus what was edited and what was played out. That was one of the reasons why I stopped doing interviews at the time is because I realized it was just a clickbait. It was never about me. It was always about B, and as it should have been, as it should have been, right? Because I'm still growing, I'm still a young artist. And so for me to be looked at as somebody who peaked at 28, I'm only 32, right? I think to me was like like a slap on the face. So for that reason, I really, I can't say that I could I could back that up. However, <laughs> I would say that moment has allowed me to, you know, have my ambitions taken a little more serious than usual because, I mean, it makes it seem like I wasn't doing anything up until that point, right? Like that I didn't have the sort of intellectual project that that I've been engaged in, that I was given this handout, like that I didn't go to Cooper Union, that I didn't go to Yale, that I wasn't on my Mm -hmm. way to where I'm headed. If I can correct that, like that was misguided in a lot of ways. But yeah, I think that moment did allow me to kind of, you know, have bigger ambitions in terms of shows with my galleries. In 2018, I was able to do my first show in Hong Kong, all neons. And that's something that I've been wanting to do for years. Again, like maybe it was that moment, maybe not, but I was able to to get that accomplished.
1: You started working really intentionally with Instagram. (laughs) <laughs> you know, this this platform. I did, I did, uh, I, of- I, I no
0: longer do. It became like a breeding ground for people to steal the ideas that, that you would put out. I think after that moment, I started to share less and less, not only about my studio practice, but also like my personal life. To me, like art is life and life is art. And in that way, like Instagram was sort of an extension of that. And, and then I realized all the weirdos that were on the internet, right? Like people that would have finstas who would be aware of what you're doing, but then you have no idea what they, it's just a weird space. And then also like just a lot of ideas that I've been working on, I was using it as an archive, I was using it as a gallery. And once I started seeing these sort of ideas being interpreted freely and people taking liberty, but then kind of taking off with them. Again, Instagram a couple years ago is very different than how it is now, right? Like the corporations have kind of infiltrated Instagram. Now it's all about influencers. Now it's all about numbers. It's no longer the organic sort of internet space that it once was. I would say it's highly democratized at this point.
1: You're totally right that artists on Instagram have become used as these freebie creative consultants for brands and they swoop in, there have been all these lawsuits. It seems to be um, the case that, you know, creative directors will just scroll through and pick and choose what they want. And I mean, not to say anything overly uncomfortable, but it's almost as if Beyonce did something like that with you, because when she gave birth to the twins, she did a photograph that was very much in the same style of the one that you did for her, but with a totally different photographer named Mason Poole. You know, I'm not going to press you on that one, but (laughs) you started working... A lot more with music, also, after this happened. Uh, and, um, uh, uh,
0: sorry. I've always I've always worked with music. Music has always been a huge aspect of my my practice. I mean, I'm I'm a kid from the Bronx. Uh, how how could I how could I not have worked with music? You know what I mean? Music is a huge huge aspect of my practice, my personality. So it wasn't that moment that changed everything for me. I think maybe that moment brought a lot of things to light. Uh,
1: yeah. So. You do these incredible mixtapes for your shows. You have songs that create a context for the artworks and they inform the artworks, they kind of duet with the artworks.
0: Being from New York, growing up in in sort of nightlife, I've always had the interest and I've always, uh, more than anything, had the ear for music. And so by the time I got to Yale, and I, I would say my first semester, I was kind of in and out of New Haven, so I didn't really care too much, but I got, like one of the worst critiques of my experience there, it was like the third crit first semester, which is kind of like the final crit. And, you know, it really sort of took me down a notch. And what that did for me was it allowed me to kind of have this moment of reflection and say like, all right, you're, you're now in New Haven. You live here. You can't keep going back into New York every weekend. You can't take assignments. You're at school now. So then I committed to being in New Haven being there over the weekends and rarely kind of leaving New Haven to go see shows whenever I could. So because of that and because I was still interested in sort of, you know, nightlife and going out to bars after after critiques and, and sort of discussing the critiques which is really where the critiques happen. you know. It's like at the bar, after the critiques. <laughs> okay. then, it, then it became this sort of opportunity to entertain my friends, right? And to kind of put them on to new things that I was listening to. Or like somebody would walk into my studio and would hear something and, and they would ask what it is. And so I got tired of it and I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna start DJing. Again, I wasn't trying to be a DJ. It was just something that was like an extension and it was just a tool for me to, to get the music out, right? And then from that practice, like it just became more and more incorporated into the work. And I think the sort of this idea of the conceptual mixtape came together, like maybe like towards my last semester at Yale, where I put this Carrie James Marshall interview lecture with like a Beyonce song, you know, just a bunch of songs that I was listening to and I would mix them with my friends at the time. I've done one with Kitty Cash, I've done one with Mellow X, So Super Sam. Those are the DJs that were kind of shaping the culture at the time. And and they happened to be my friends. They were also in New York at the same time. And so it was just an organic process. And luckily we had similar taste in music. So it wasn't like we're agonizing over what song was better than, you know, another. It was a matter of how do we put these ideas together? And then how do we thread these things so that we can create breaks or elongate some passage in the song, so then we can insert Carrie James Marshall talking about the absence of the black body in, in this white space, right? So that sort of practice just kind of kept on evolving to the point where I started just DJing for myself, and then, you know, if you bring it all the way to the current show, or at least the show that just went down, now I'm scoring the exhibitions. So I I collaborated with two composers, one for the films and one for the space. My good friend, Christian Scott, who's a prolific jazz musician, and I just sent him a folder of all the images that were in the show, and I said, give me a score, use this as inspiration.
1: You know, recently, a couple of weeks ago, we had the the producer... Jimmy Iovine on the show, okay. and and he spoke about how he thinks contemporary art is now occupying the place in the culture that pop music used to occupy.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it always has. It's not something we could get into lightly, right? Like, because we're talking about Black modes of production. This sort of pandemic brought a lot of things to light, but I think that's been going on for ages. You know what I mean? So it's nothing new. I think people are now just waking up to it. I think now institutions and corporations are getting behind these things And now you're getting this moment of awakening and people are just now taking it serious. Now it's being monetized. But I don't necessarily think it's new. It's been happening for me in my eyes. And that's why I've always used it as a tool. It's a vehicle to deliver an idea, right? So if someone didn't know Carrie James Marshall prior to coming in to see my exhibition, now they're drawn in. Maybe they come in because of the flyer. Then they are sticking around because of the music. But then in that moment, this other thing transpires, which is Karen James Marshall coming out of the speakers and saying these things and, you know, flipping your relationship to the experience that you're having in that space.
1: So to fast forward, since we last touched base on your trajectory, you had a bunch more shows, including one in 2017 that slammed Donald Trump and offered up alternative Make America Great, again, swag, which I think is gonna age very, very well, (laughs) as a matter of fact. And then you did shoots for GQ, The New Yorker. Then this fall, you opened up a show at the uh, Flag Art Foundation in New York called Mystic Parallax, a visual manifesto. And it is an amazing show. And even though it just closed, people can and still should go see it virtually, through this remarkable website called easel.net that gives you like a video game kind of uh, interface <laughs> of seeing it. Yeah. And I did that. I didn't actually see it in person, but I I, I used this, oh. this interface and it was really, I, I'm
0: sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all good. It's but, just, I mean, and, that, and that's the thing that I miss about the new world. You can't really force anybody to go see our shows anymore. You, you hope they do. It's one of the best shows that I've ever done. And I'm not saying that lightly. And to go back a little bit about the, you know, Make America Great Again, again, there's this misconception that I was trying to slam Donald Trump. The show had nothing to do with Donald Trump. I used it at the time because of the emotions, these pent up emotions that were echoed throughout the culture, you know, and I always pay attention to to the larger culture. And I think at the time, that was something that I felt needed to be said but I don't necessarily think I w- I really cared about Trump all that much. I think the media wanted it to be, and there was a sort of acquiescence on my part in allowing that to happen, but I didn't really think that they would go as far as they did with it. But I mean, if you look at the titles and if you look at the actual show, it has very little to do about Trump or his administration. I think I was just reflecting on some of the things that I was seeing, one of them mm-hmm. being, and I remember this very vividly, like the moment he was appointed to office, I remember driving down, I think it's Venice. and I remember seeing this archaic looking door that luckily I found at Home Depot. <laughs> and somebody had sprayed Trump, but the tea was a swastika. And I thought that was really interesting mm. at the time, you know? It was a moment of reflection for me. I think through my works, and I think that's that's really what stuck
1: to go to your current show. So the work in the exhibition fuses together in a way that is a little bit like a a visual hip-hop album, bringing together idioms from rap music. You've got glocks, you've got dice, you've got electronic scales with imagery related to the art of Africa and the African diaspora. And I want to talk about some of the specific works because I think they are kind of these prisms into a bunch of ideas that shoot off in all these different directions. So you enter the show, and the first thing you see is this big neon piece called Fuck Twelve. Yep. So what does that mean?
0: I'm not necessarily here to kind of dissect any meanings. You know, part of the the idea behind the show and the concept of Mystic Parallax is that people could kind of come into it how they will. To some people, it's a number. To other people, it's a code for something else. But it is a code. I think it became very prevalent during the protest that we just experienced. You know, if anybody wants to do the research, I think it's there. And I think it's also important to note this whole show was delayed. It was supposed to happen before pandemic, before the lockdown. So that's important to note because I don't want it to read as a show or exhibition that I made in light of recent incidents. The neon in question was from that show that I did called Slow Burn in Hong Kong. You see that these ideas are a little bit, and I I can't even say they're dated. It was just, again, in the same way that I see certain things and I try to bring them to light, or I guess in this case, creating a visual manifestation of something that was just audible, right? Fuck 12 comes from trap music, comes from the South, but then it's never been visualized or it's never been materialized in that way. Again, at the time, that was something that was interesting to me. There was many variations on that. And it's also important to note that I did design that neon, like it wasn't an arbitrary design. In light of the pandemic, it became this thing that was like standing for this moment again. It's been in the music, I'm just materializing it, finding another way of saying it, finding another way of presenting that idea.
1: So talk about the next piece that you encounter. It's it's called Submission. And it's a prayer rug with a burnt copy of the 1983 book, Flash of the Spirit, African and Afro-American Art and Philosophy by Robert Farris Thompson, who is a distinguished professor at Yale. He's a white man. And he wrote this kind of canonical book about African art. What does this book mean to you?
0: Ah, the million dollar question. <laughs> well, I've had a very long, conflicting relationship with both Robert Ferris Thompson and that book. Let me start by saying that the burning of a book does not correlate to my personal feelings towards Robbis Ferris Thompson. To me, it was more of um, a symbolic gesture. And this is something that comes from like a very personal place, which was, as you put it, he is a white professor, at least visually, right? But on paper, I think a lot of people think he's Black. And I'm sure that that's gotten him far in this sort of academic space. So my first encounter of him in that book was back when I was, I believe I was a freshman at Cooper and I went to a lecture that he was giving. I was excited about the topic. I don't know if it was like an essay that he made into a lecture or vice versa, but it was something around black and cool. And so of course I approached it like any other lecture. I was excited. I was eager to see this person. I was eager to hear what he has to say. I show up to an audience full of white kids with few sprinkled other races, if you will. And I was shocked, right? And it doesn't stop there. I also had this experience of seeing a white man dancing. He was doing Zulu dance. There was a performative aspect to his lectures. And again, this is all due respect. I'm just trying to walk you through my thought process of how -hmm. that became about. And there was something... Visceral about that experience for me, where I immediately rejected anything that was coming out of his mouth. Just immediately. I stayed as much as I could and I just took off. Up until the point where I burned the book, I don't know if I had the language to approach it, to dissect it, to analyze it. That's very recent. I think I burned that book on the film, in the manifesto, uh, in 2019. I would see a lot of these so called tastemakers, cultural, sort of cultural figures, if you will just kind of holding this book to like a very high regard, almost to like this biblical status. And I was curious if they knew if this man was white or not, you know what I mean? And part of my personal philosophy is that if you really champion black art, if you really champion black culture, you really have to know who you heroes are, right? And this is something that I've also been doing in my own practice, which is retroactively going back into my own works, into my own sort of understanding of certain philosophies and dissecting them and and understanding the root and the origins of where these things begin. So for me, that was just like a symbolic gesture to just say, I'm moving past this. I acknowledge it. I see it, but I'm moving past this.
1: I think that this binary or this discord between African art and the Western kind of establishment is a real running theme in this show. And one of the pieces that you see is the famous bust of Nefertiti, this time covered in mirrors yep. and hanging from the ceiling, you know, rotating like a disco ball. I don't know if you would want to talk about the ideas behind this piece, which is really redolent of the Black origins of a lot of American pop music, of disco, and just general American contemporary culture.
0: And this practice of retroactive reflection, if you will. I'm really trying to go past the sort of colonial conversation, imperialistic conversation. I'm, I'm trying to go to pre-colonial Africa as taught by Sheikh Antti Diop, as thinkers like Mante Diawara and the likes, right? The type of Africa that they're teaching are what I'm interested in. So to me, Egypt, Ethiopia, and some other aspects of Africa are the roots of civilization. And so again, for me to kind of correct some of my misunderstandings, or I would say miseducation in a lot of ways, right, is then to go back and find out the truth behind the histories. That's what I would encourage a lot of my peers to do, is to not just be blinded by what these sort of programs sort of brainwash you with, right? To me, the Nefertiti just connects all those dots for me. She's a queen, everybody knows her, a black queen. It's one of those iconographies that everybody around the world could connect to. And, and I love it for that directness. It is a reoccurring motif in my work.
1: You had this great piece at MoMA where there was a video where he took a sledgehammer and destroyed a bust of David and replaced it with one of Nefertiti. And I think that, that was- Ser- Serendipity,
0: uh, that of- was a pivotal moment. Yeah, that was that was in a lot of ways, uh, my personal, my my sort of intellectual awakening, right? But yeah, it was just moment of, I need to externalize all these internal feelings that I have towards Western art and how A, we don't see enough of, of ourselves in these things. And then also as a gesture, a lot of times that I'm making these gestures is mainly for my peers. I see certain things and I feel the need to kind of throw an accent in there, throw a sort of suggestion. And then I realized a couple years down the road, because in this show, she's also on fire. And there was a moment where I kind of had to correct my own mistake by again, setting her to blaze because A, I didn't want her to become the sort of goddess-like figure, right? Because she was only a queen. And then also like the fact that this was a white bust by material, like that it wasn't a black material. So there's all these thoughts that go into the revision that also happens within my own practice.
1: So the title of the show is Mystic Parallax and parallax according to dictionary is the quote, apparent displacement of an observed object due to a change in position of the observer. The fascinating visual manifesto that you put forth here is that, you know, if you're standing in Africa, and you're staying in the United States, the same thing looks very different. And I think that that really is something that comes across powerfully. What are you working on next? You have a couple of big projects that are in the works. Is there anything you can talk about?
0: I do have something in the books with the Public Art Fund. Um, we do have a project that uh, we're, we're finalizing that will be with J.C. Deco bus shelters, both in New York and in Chicago. I believe a very special assignment that I did for GQ might already be out by the time this airs, which was a very special portfolio of all the fathers that we were able to get to of the recently fallen men in the media. So we're fortunate enough to go meet with Selwyn Jones, who's George Floyd's uncle. There's Jacob Blake Sr., Terrence Kresher over in Tulsa, and also Michael Brown Sr., of course. I'm blanking out because I don't have the full list. It was a bittersweet kind of opportunity and journey because, you know, I wish I'd met these men under different circumstances. Now that I'm a father, you know, how do I depict these men that we seldom see in the news being dignified without getting too emotional about it? Like to see your kid. Going out like that at any age, let alone as an adult, is painful. And that's something that I that I had to think about every time we traveled from one city to the next and thinking about the kind of situations that a lot of these men were in before they were shot by the police. And then putting myself in that position also because I got pulled over on our way to Tulsa. And I mean, it was just... I, you know, it was just like, it, it on, was, on it was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. On this, on this, on this journey. Don't. Yeah. On this journey to make these images. I remember it was, it was late night cause we had to do a lot of driving and you know, I got pulled over. I might've been speeding a little bit. I'm not going to lie to my defense. I think it was like 722 and we were like, 40 miles away from like this restaurant. We're trying to make it in time so that we can order something decent to eat because when you're traveling and doing a project like that, it's just, it's hard to find decent food. So we got this recommendation that this restaurant would be open. I was trying to make that time and I didn't see this patrol officer. Luckily he was he was black and he was very kind to me. And I'm thinking about that as I'm thinking about, you know, the next subject that I was about to photograph, right? Who unfortunately met his fate in a similar fashion. So it does ground you a little bit to have these experiences. It was a very powerful, bittersweet journey that I just came back from. I, I, there was a lot to unpack there, going from one city to the next and you know, meeting all these different fathers who, who were in different periods of the grieving process and, and trying to connect with them in a way that, that was genuine and that wasn't like some sort of reporter coming in to just take a picture of them to put on on the news.
1: As an artist who's been crisscrossing the country, who's been delving into these tortured seams of the culture and the places where there's a lot of ideological, intellectual puzzles to solve. What is your outlook right now? How are you feeling about 2021?
0: Hmm. We just arrived to Detroit. It was a breezy, chilly night. And I was outside with uh, one of my lighting techs. We're just kind of observing Detroit, right? And these two cars pull up next to each other. And this one guy yells at the next car, it ain't all good, it ain't all bad. So (laughs) I don't necessarily think having this new regime is gonna solve everything that needs to be dealt with. I'm slightly optimistic that things will change, but how far and, and how fast, I'm not too sure. But I hope that whatever world we're stepping into post this pandemic will be a better one that we're leaving behind.
1: I think that we're all in the same roller coaster ride over here <laughs> and it's, right, gonna be, right. <laughs> it's gonna be a pretty eventful couple of months and years coming up. But uh, <laughs> thanks very much for coming on the show. You've been doing such incredible work and it's really a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Andrew, thank you so much for your time and I, I really appreciate everything that you do. Yeah, keep up the great content. Thank you.
1: So that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manolili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.